The views you're about to hear on the Dr. Plus podcast are those of the individual participants and not their employers, any other organization, or the American College of Physicians. So let's get to it. Welcome to Dr. Plus, the podcast where we explore the hobbies, activities, and adventures outside of medicine that make our friends and colleagues truly amazing. I'm Saganish, an academic internal medicine and public health doctor practicing in St. Paul. And I'm David, an internal medicine doctor practicing hospital and clinical medicine in downtown Minneapolis. We recognize our colleagues for their clinical work, research, or incredible academic achievements, but we often don't get to hear about the other sides of their lives, their pluses. Here on this podcast, we get to spend a few minutes getting to know each other in a new way. We have had such a great time getting to know our colleagues and to hear about their pluses and their work and how they got into it. And today on Dr. Plus, David Hilden and I will get to share our pluses and talk about how we got into the other work that we do. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Dr. Plus. David. Today, we get to talk about our pluses. I'm looking forward to that. I think I know a, a lot about you, Saganish, but I'm looking forward to hearing some more today. Well, luckily, we get to start with you. So, David, tell us what your nine to five is. What is your job? So, I am an internal medicine doctor here in downtown Minneapolis. I've been doing that for about 25 years. I, I work at the big county hospital, the big safety net hospital in Minneapolis, where I see patients both in the clinic and in the hospital, and I have some administrative roles as well. And so that's my nine to five, and I just wish it were nine to five. You know, it's sometimes a little bit outside those hours. I am noticing that you're in a nice, big, spacious new office. So maybe that's why it's not a nine to five. What is the new administrative role that you have? Yeah, a little bit. I've got a Ted Lasso quote on the wall over there. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a ceramics from the Middle East over there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, um, I'm the chair of the Department of Medicine, which means I lead uh, internal medicine at this hospital. That's about uh, 185 doctors and 90 nurse practitioners and physician assistants and other advanced practice providers, and 70 doctors in training, otherwise called resident physicians. So a little over half or two-thirds of the medical care provided at this hospital I get to oversee. It's a privilege. We call you the big boss. I'm yet to hear that. Oh, really? That's how you are on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So other than being an internal medicine physician and working on this administrative role, tell us, what is your plus? So I do a lot of media. Hmm. One of them is I'm a podcaster. Hmm, shocking. <laughs> but I've done media and radio and broadcasting for a number of years. And that all got started back in about 2008. I'm minding my own business. I'm seeing patients in the clinic, just being a doctor, just trying to do you know what we all do. And we get an email from the hospital administration. We're starting a radio show. Who wants to do it? And I didn't, I didn't do it, but two of my friends... Heidi and Ann, they, they might dispute this, but I remind them, both of them independently emailed me and said, you never shut up. Why don't you do this? <laughs> Why don't you go on the radio? And so the truth is, I had an AM radio show. It was a live radio broadcast from 2009 to uh, just a couple of years ago. We did 676 live radio shows. It's AM talk radio, where I talk to the people of the upper Midwest and frankly, talk to people all over the world. I had callers call in and ask me questions on the fly. I had guests on it. 
It was on a Sunday morning time slot, so my radio audience skewed a little bit older, just a little bit. <laughs> and uh, but uh, I enjoyed that immensely. I got to I got to talk to people in real time. I talked to farmers in Minnesota. I talked to snowbirds, which are people who are wintering in Arizona but still listen to their hometown radio station, and they would call in. I had repeat callers. I got to do 20 shows from the Minnesota State Fair live, and you'd think no one would come out. 30 or 40 people came out at 7 in the morning on a Sunday morning at the Minnesota State Fair and watched the show live. So it was a real privilege. We, we think we had about 18 million people over the course of that run, and then I transferred to podcasting. So I do, I do that now. I remember you at the Minnesota State Fair. It was probably the only reason I got there that early on a Sunday because I didn't have children there. You were right across from the French Meadows. So I would often buy you something to keep your strength up during the taping of the episodes. You know, it's funny at the fair because I've been going to the fair since I was little. In the afternoon and the evening, you do the rides, you eat all the food, you go to the things. But at seven in the morning on a Sunday, you know who's at the fair? It's all the animals. And they're like walking their goats in the middle of the street of the fair and there's street sweepers going on. So I didn't think there's anybody there, but it's peaceful and it's clean. And you're right. The food places are open. You can get a hot dog or you can get a scone from French Meadow Bakery. And I remember when you brought me that one. And the whole thing on radio was was really fun. But, you know, the audience was pretty static. We get... 20 to 40,000 people a week listening, which sounds like a whole lot, but it was the same 20 or 40,000. And most people listening to AM radio are older adults and, and, and fewer and fewer access to media. And so we really had to make some decisions uh, about that. And um, I still have a great warm place in my heart for the radio station. I'm still on there quite a mm -hmm. bit. And even during COVID, I was on twice, three times, three times a week. I had a regularly scheduled spot on, on the radio station to talk about COVID with the morning drive time guy twice and then in the afternoon. So I, I kept up with it a little bit and I'm still on there every now and then um, to this day. So it sounds like the idea for the podcast, though, came from corporate, essentially. Do you know why they wanted to do it? And had you done anything like this in the past, like besides your friends being like, come be on the show because you talk a lot? Were there other reasons or other experiences that you had before? I hadn't really before medicine, but one thing I, I do find in medicine is that I do like to talk in stories. And I do like to, well, frankly, I talk in allegory and metaphor with my patients a lot. I've done that since the beginning. I talk about, you know, heart disease and coronary disease as you're, when you're born, your blood vessels are like a garden hose and they're rubbery and they give, but when they get older, they're more like a, a pipe and people go nod. They go, oh yeah. Yeah, I get that. And so I found I do talk in stories and that's how I do my, my medicine, medical practice. And it was a way to do that to the public, to, to speak to people in a lighthearted way. I'm a fairly lighthearted guy in just kind of a little more normal tones. I'm not professorial. I'm not giving lectures, uh, just uh, meeting people where they are. And it was actually quite a privilege. People would call me um, with their actual medical problems and I would have to say, you know what? There's a radio show, you know, you, you're maybe you're going to have let's to. let's not talk about you know, that on air. Twice I called 911 from the radio <gasps> no, station. you did it. Yeah. Yeah. One woman was having a stroke. I'm sure she was having a stroke. And I said, oh, ma'am, um, I'm going to have you stay on the line and we're going to call. Uh, <laughs> we're going to call for you. So um, and the second time, I believe somebody was having a heart mm -hmm. attack and, and they're, they called the radio station. It was a part of people's Sunday morning. So many people said, I get up, I make my coffee, mm. 
I listen to the radio show and then I go to church or I go milk the cows. One guy kept telling me how I got to go get the cattle, but I have to listen to you first. And so I really felt like I was part of people's Sunday mornings. And it became a way to speak in in just human terms, yeah. not the medical terms, not the luxury terms about uh, healthcare, and and um, it was really a privilege to spend Sunday mornings with everybody. And now we do it on a podcasting format, and that's also good though. I, I continue to have a podcast called Healthy Matters with David Hilton, and um, that podcast comes out uh, a couple times a month, still to this day. Mm-hmm. And that's been been really nice um, to to continue in a format that's a little bit more accessible to more people now. Has your audience changed? Can you tell? Yeah, it has. Um, I was initially ambivalent about moving to a digital media format, mm-hmm. and just, just like we're we're doing this, mm-hmm. um, uh, I had real time, unfiltered, unscripted interactions with people from all over the country on the radio show. We'd literally chat, you know, just back and forth. We'd have a conversation on the radio and people would essentially be eavesdropping in on conversations. So that real-time uh, connection with people is lost in in more modern digital communications. But people don't have an hour on Sunday morning to listen at my schedule. People want to listen to things and they want to access information on their schedule, which is a good learning message for me, you mm-hmm. know, they ought to be able to do that. So people listen to podcasts at different times of day. Sometimes they're doing something else. Sometimes it's when they're working out. Sometimes it's when they're in their car. Sometimes they're more dedicated and sitting on a couch, but we have found it is more accessible to more people. How has this informed your work as a physician? Like, do you think it's changed your practice at all? Yeah, very much so. Very, very much so. Uh, in fact, I would say my, my foray into public education on health has been the singular biggest thing in my medical career. Probably uh, in my professional life, the two most monumental decisions I ever made was one, to go to medical school. I used to make barcodes for a living. So going to medical school. And then number two is uh, going into media because we can affect people one-on-one really well in our practices. We can give medical advice and we can connect with people one-on-one. The Ability to talk to people and and get stories out about people and talk about medicine to larger groups has has informed how I then do everything in my life. It's how I teach the medical students. It's how I teach residents. It's how I teach and talk to patients in the clinic. Um, I have a much more public, broader sense uh, of that work. And so it's, it's informed it a great deal. I think it's really interesting, right? I think we have this image of what a doctor looks like or how a doctor functions in the world and how a doctor functions in society. And to say, here's this accessible doctor who is on the radio, who is like a little more casual and funny and, you know, approachable, you probably ended up making people feel very comfortable in that space and that you were familiar. So when they got into trouble, like they're having a heart attack, they're like, oh, I'll just call David. I'll just call Dr. Hillman. I I think that might be the case. It was big in COVID. It was very big during the COVID um, when when information out there wasn't always trustworthy. And if we're Mm -hmm. honest, Mm -hmm. a lot of the information out there was not trustworthy. And I was on the radio so many times a week giving just little five-minute updates. And I was very clear to say, this is what we know now. Here's our recommendations. Here's what we know. 
doctors can be wrong. And if, if your doctor isn't telling you they can be wrong, they're not being honest. But, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but we gave them the best scientific evidence in a humanistic way that we possibly could during COVID. That's what I tried to do on everything from how we're keeping you safe. What, when should you be concerned? Uh, what are these vaccines all about? Maybe you're worried about it. That's okay. But here's what we know now. And what I learned later from that is I, I've had colleagues time and time and time again tell me that they got one of their patients came in and said, I'm here for that thing because Hilden told me to do it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, it was a way to connect with people in what I hope was accessible and a trusted way. And I think we need that. We need accessible and trustworthy sources of information. And, and in my case, I hope with a little bit of humor. One of my, one of my funny ones that I just love, and I, I don't make it, any of this up in advance, but one woman called and said, I've got this sound in my ear and it sounds like a foghorn. It just sounds like a mm-hmm. foghorn. And, and mm-hmm. I said, well, do you happen to live in Duluth? Now, if people don't know what that is, Duluth, Minnesota is a seagoing port in northern Minnesota. And she started laughing because what I was getting at, well, maybe you're hearing ships, you know, with, with their foghorns. And so we uh-huh. made this uh-huh. funny thing and it just broke the ice. And then we talked about her tinnitus and her ear problems. But making uh, a little <laughs> bit of light, a, a lightheartedness to our lives um, is important to me. It is. I think it's, I think it's essential. So, Saganish, I want to hear about your plus. Um but before we do that, tell me about your nine to five. What, what's your day job? Yeah. So my day job right now, I am a medical educator. I'm an internal medicine physician. My clinical work is in public health. I work in a tuberculosis clinic and I also do work in incarceration uh, medicine. But the bulk of my time really is in medical education. I love teaching medical students and designing curriculum for them. And that is the bulk of what I do. What is your plus? So my plus, as I would have said a long time ago that I am into narrative medicine about writing and trying to express these things in medicine that affect us as physicians and affect us as human beings. And more recently, I think I've settled into the title of saying I'm a storyteller because I discovered that that is really a lot of what I do. I love stories, the way you were talking about allegory and use of words to get us closer to the truth. I love stories for their oral tradition. There's a way of telling and a way of speaking words rather than when you read or you write words. It's just very, very different. So I think that is where I've landed. What's interesting to me is, as you know, if you've been in medicine, I've been in medicine for a long time. I graduated, you know, probably over 20 years ago now. Oh, is that right? doesn't matter. It's close enough. Close enough to 20 years that I graduated from medical school. And when I was training, there were very few examples or places where you saw like anything close to the melding of narrative medicine and pathophysiology. The closest I got, and the reason I'm an internal medicine doctor is because of uh, Dr. Klaus, a shout out to Abbott. Klaus Pirak? Klaus Pirak. I know Klaus Pirak. He probably doesn't even remember me. But him and Laurel Drevlo were my uh, internal medicine preceptors. I know her too. They are so great. I know. Laurel remembers me. So at least that much I can, Dr. Drevlo. It's like your teachers, right? So they they created spaces within our internal medicine rotation that brought in art. I remember looking at impressionist paintings and hearing poetry on the wards. 
right? So part of our actual didactic sessions were spent in thinking about how the arts influence us, how it helps us be more observant, how it really helps us express some of those other parts. I had not had that in medicine until that point. You know, you'd have occasionally be asked to read something, some poem, but it wasn't a part of how I grew up in medicine. And I think getting to see that and have examples of that really made me want to become an internal medicine physician. I thought, oh, this feels really human. You know, all these ex human experiences in one place. And then you go to residency, which is probably the most dehumanizing thing at that time, at least. And I didn't get a chance to play with that. I did my training in Boston, and there's a lot of actually spoken word in Boston, and I loved attending spoken word. The way that they use words as poems, and also there's an artistic component and a performative component to spoken word, oh, blew my mind, because you would sit there and you would have all these words come at you, and at the end of it, you feel something. You have a very emotional and visceral reaction to this thing, this story that someone was telling, and I, I, that for me was incredible. You said it was hard for you to own or claim that you are a storyteller, mm -hmm. but aren't we all in some way? What do you mean by that? That's a really good question, David. I don't know that I have a solid answer for it. I I didn't see myself in that way. We are all storytellers, especially if you come from, you know, I'm Ethiopian and from African cultures and from indigenous cultures, uh, storytelling, oral traditions, speaking truths are how we pass along wisdom. It's not just a theoretical thing. It is really how I know things to be true. And I love people and I love, you know, you get into a crowd and you just start sharing stories about this and about that. And I love conversation. I don't think I thought I was good at it. I don't think that I thought I had the skills of storytelling. I think I was trying to find where my voice was. I really thought I was a writer and I, I still write. I still really love writing. And I realized I like giving speeches. I love this idea of taking something, some notion that you have and putting it into words and then presenting it to an audience. It's really how that, that started noodling for me. I got the incredible privilege of getting to do the white coat ceremony speech. I had just had my firstborn and I was really struggling after giving birth. So I was sort of in this hard place. I'd come back to work. And I was trying to like figure out this mom doctor thing at the same moment that I got asked to give the talk for the white coat ceremony. And it was like this juxtaposition of something really high, which was this honor to get to talk at white coat with this like real struggle of trying to figure out this new role of being a mom. And in that speech, I had to really reflect what would I want to know as a first year medical student? And I think they come, you know, medical students, we come in with these ideals of saving the world and doing good and curing cancer. And we look around at physicians as very other until you become a medical student yourself. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought what I need them to understand is that we're all really, really broken. Every physician, every human being is broken. And I'd come across this Greek mythology of Chiron, who is the center, who's half man and half horse. And in Greek mythology, he is a healer, but he's a healer because he has a wound that never heals. He has this wound that it just bothers him. And as he's seeking healing for this wound, seeking like relief for his wound, he ends up learning so much about medicine and then uses that to heal other people. 
And I got to talk to medical students at that white coat about the fact that we really were all wounded healers. That's all we are. We're wounded healers. And as we're seeking out ways to get our own healing, we become better physicians. And that when you look around at your fellow physicians and you see their scars, that's who you want. Like you want people with scars because they've been able to, they've been hurt and they've healed and they have a scar to show for it. And I, I think in that moment, I, it's still one of my favorite things I've ever written and I've ever talked about. And I thought, oh, I wish I would have had this as a medical student. It made me want to work with medical students and it made me want to help them see medicine differently and allow different people and different, different kinds of doctors, this image of a doctor and wanting to shift it and change it for them. So I'm like totally being human right now, this is actually making me realize that a lot of the work I do in medical education and in storytelling is to uh, really change this narrative around who the doctor is, who is the doctor, and what does the doctor look like, and how should the doctor act, and how should the doctor be. It's, I, I don't know, I'm just having that this moment of just <laughs> realizing, mm-hmm. realizing that even in you know medical education, you know, trying to create spaces for more real and a real hard look at how we decide who gets to be, who gets to be a doctor. Uh, So you asked me the question of why didn't I see myself at that as a storyteller? Because I thought it was an in juxtaposition or an opposition of what it meant to be a good doctor. I thought to be a good doctor, you know, facts, you know, figures, you can cite that study. I went to BMC, Boston Medical Center, Boston Medical Center, and what was valued in my residence, just East Coast in general, right? I'm an, I, I feel like I'm an East Coaster in my spirit, but there's a right and there's a wrong and you know the answer and you make the diagnosis and you do your job. And that is your job as a physician. And I would see people who would they would always tell me, oh, Saganish, you're so good with patients. And honestly, I hated that. I thought, oh, I must not be a good doctor if the best thing you can tell me is how good I am with patients. Like, she's really great. She, she can't diagnose your heart attack, but she's really good with patients. Do you have an impression that a doctor looked like Marcus Welby? First of all, it was a white man with a white long coat and was authoritative. And is that what a doctor looked like? I think that's what a doctor looks like for everyone, right? Everyone from like Norman Rockwell. Right. You know, the images you have there to when we talk about Osler to when we talk about even Marie Curie, who is a woman, there's just this image of a a good doctor is a serious doctor. Mm -hmm. A good doctor is one that is on their game and they are studious and they love data and they're very meticulous and detail oriented. And I can push those skills forward. When I was younger, this is the image I was striving to be. So storyteller, feeler, expression, creative. And it was incompatible that thought. Yeah. It's incompatible. It's incompatible. Over time, medicine has really shifted and partly because of us. We've been you know, we're getting more seniority. I get to sit at more tables. I don't really care if you don't think I belong here because I have become much more sure about myself as a physician. I couldn't say this in the beginning. You know, I can tell you I'm a good doctor. I'm a good doctor that can take care of you, that's smart, that can problem solve, and I can sit with you. I am very creative. I can feel with you. 
and I can come up with very creative solutions for your whatever we're, we're talking about. But I think the once I was sure in my skill and ability as a physician, then it felt easier to take on the role of saying, I'm a storyteller. It strikes me, Sigonish, though, that that is exactly what people want in their doctor. Maybe they didn't in 1957. I remember being told, you need to separate your emotions from your patients. You just mm-hmm. need to be kind mm-hmm. of very kind mm-hmm. of distant. Mm-hmm. You just have to. Mm-hmm. That's who we, in my opinion. And and telling the stories, your stories, and listening to the stories of the patients, and sometimes in formal settings, sometimes in informal settings, is exactly what we ought to be doing now. I agree that that's the doctor I would want. I think when I was younger, I worried that that you couldn't have both, that you couldn't have a smart and caring doctor, that you sort of had to pick one, partly because medical training, when we were going through it, David, you know, it would have been really hard to be emotionally vulnerable through the training that we went through because you would you would get killed. You just, I couldn't, I couldn't have been emotionally open and vulnerable while I'm working the hours that I was working. And when I was seeing the things that I was seeing without the level of support that should have been there for us when we were going through training, I think in time, thank God medical training has changed. Thank God residency has changed. Thank God medical school has changed. It still has a long, long, long way to go, but it feels like we are starting to create spaces to have, to let ourselves be human I think at the end of the day, we're we're allowing human beings to take care of human beings and trying to care for both of those needs. Whereas in before, the minute you put on that white coat, you almost abdicated your humanity. You just said, I'm something else. I'm not human. I'm something else. So we've talked about the white coat ceremony, which is uh, the launching of a medical student's career. What, uh, what else have you done? The fun part is I've gotten to talk at a white coat again and a recognition ceremony and what's happened over time, sort of how you were talking about how radio opened up other doors and media for you. There's been other doors and opportunities that have opened up for me, partly from the storytelling. I would go and storytell in the community. Actually, that's where I met our producer, Julie, is by storytelling at our local moth and getting to see that part of the storytelling community. Medicine has also changed a lot. And at our medical school, we now, we have a center for art and medicine. And through that, I've had opportunities to work on TPT stories that talk about storytelling. Our local ACP chapter had a story slam. And that's where I got to tell one of my other favorite stories, which is channeling your inner white man. Hopefully we'll be able to post that somewhere. So I'm an immigrant black woman who's a physician in internal medicine. And I wrote a piece about how sometimes to survive in spaces like that, you have to channel your inner white man. You have to find a way to have presence in a place and feel like you belong and know that you belong. And you also have to notice when you're in environments where you get to be totally yourself without having to channel the inner white man. And I love, I love getting to tell stories like that, really centering the story on the margins and getting to give voice to some of these ideas that we all live with. Okay. Can I, can I get you to say more about channeling your inner white man? Now, when <laughs> I heard that, when I, because I am a white man. What? And I remember listening to that. And mm-hmm. when you've told that story about channeling your inner white man, you've been able to talk about um, your experience in spaces that maybe weren't designed for you. Mm-hmm. They were designed for me. 
Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing, but it's, I'm just saying, you know, kind of the facts. I'm the white guy. And, um, and can you say more about what you mean by that concept? Because it gripped me at the time. I mean, I'll answer that question, but how do you, how did you receive that when you were first hearing me give that title? I receive that as I'm listening to a black woman from uh-huh. uh, an Ethiopian woman who I uh-huh. knew well, I knew you well, we're friends. Um, but I'm listening to words that I had never occurred to me before. Okay. In my life, I haven't had to consider things like, do I belong in this space? Do mm-hmm. I? Because frankly, I probably am what people thought of in the 50s as a doctor. You know, I went, at least when I wear a white coat, which I don't mm-hmm. know. But mm-hmm. but as I'm, I am a white guy, you know, and I've not had to live in spaces like you, where you're literally talking about, do I at this moment have to channel my inner white man? And, and, and one of the other thoughts I had is, is she telling this story from a place of, of sadness mm-hmm. about that I have to mm-hmm. do this? Or is she mm-hmm. talking about this from a place of strength that I do belong in the spaces as your doctor? I love that. I don't think I've ever asked you that question, David. You haven't. I haven't asked you that question. I'm, I've always been curious how that lands because when I wrote that story, it was actually wasn't written with that in mind, but I've always been curious how it lands for white men. So the conversation started as me and a couple of my girlfriends were driving somewhere. And one of my girlfriends was talking about how she had a big presentation tomorrow. She's in sales and how she has a big presentation tomorrow. And I don't know where I just said to her, I'm like, you know what you need to do? You need to you need to channel your inner white man and enter that room as if you were a white man. Basically, you need to own that space. You need to own that space and bring in all of your power into that situation. And it just got me thinking how often I do that, how often there are moments where I have to be like, I just have to pause and know that that's what's required in this situation. The situation tells me, right? There's certain situations where I know that is required in this situation, whether I just have to channel it, I have to own the space and I have to walk in there as if I am supposed to be here. Conversely, there are places where I get to just walk in And in that space, I talk about that. Actually, the title of the piece when it ended up on TPT was reaching diastole, like seizing diastole. Diastole is like the resting of the heart, right? There's this place where the heart rests and it fills up. And when you enter spaces that that are spaces of diastole, you're like, oh, I get to just be me. I get to show up as myself in this space. It, it is well known in medical literature that healthcare outcomes are better when the doctors look like the patients. Uh, that's well known. I assume from that, or I, I believe from that, that there are many, 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 many people and patients who, when you walk in as their doctor, are thrilled and they feel like this is my doctor. So the fact that you sometimes have to consciously think about, do I belong in this space? Well, that's poignant. I mean, that you have to think that. I think what's interesting, and this is the power of stories, I can tell you those facts over and over. I can tell you how there's places that we've created in medical education that have a lot of sexism in it or gender bias. I can talk to you about how racial bias exists within our training and facts and figures. You probably have heard all of those. But people remember the stories. The stories become super powerful. I do want to say, though, and this I, I really is important to me to say is I write my stories for us. I write my stories for 
for people that I see as part of community and for people who are reflected in me. I write it in all the ways that that is. Sometimes I'm writing for physicians. Sometimes I'm telling stories for women. Sometimes I'm telling refugee stories. And I tap into whatever that community is and get to tell the story that I experienced through that community. And others are welcome to listen. But the audience, typically the audience that I'm writing for are for people that look like me because I I think those voices are are necessary. The storytelling helps us see each other and normalize this experience and help us say, oh, you're not alone. And I think that's that's the most important thing as humans is to understand you're not alone. You're not alone. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. What a message. And I will... Uh say, and maybe you can confirm this, that the work you've done has reached a pretty big audience. You've been on Twin Cities Public Television. You've been part of a production that literally won an Emmy. We like to say regional Emmy, but I will post a picture of it on our website. Apparently, it feels like a real Emmy. I mean, it is a real Emmy. It's regional. (laughs) I held the thing. Did you really? Did I? (laughs) I have a picture of me holding the darn thing, and I'm only in that for, I'm in a different episode for 10 seconds. That's so funny. I didn't know there was a picture of that. So Saganish and I have been talking about our own pluses. We are both internal medicine physicians with day jobs, but we both have a plus. And the whole point of our podcast is to highlight the humanity of the physicians that we all are. So thank you so much, David, for sharing your plus with me. It was such a pleasure to hear about your media work and how it has really helped you connect to the broader community. And thank you, Saganish, for sharing your plus of storytelling. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dr. Plus. Dr. Plus is sponsored by generous funding from the American College of Physicians and is produced by Julie Sensumo.